We are in chapter 3, and I like to think of Daniel as uh, hope for the future that is found in the past. This, as I said, is one of the most criticized books in the Old Testament. I think that and the book of Genesis attacked, 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 because the message found in this book is extremely dramatic and powerful. The, the author is talking about his time, but he's talking about a future time and a very future time. You've got all kinds of themes running around in this book and is very relevant, especially for young people, because you can see Daniel and his three friends. You know their names? Right, you know their Babylonian names. I, I'm always amazed at how Christians know their Babylonian names, but not their Hebrew names, right? So Hebrew, it's Daniel, and you have Hannah, Hananiah, good, Azariah, good, Mishael, good. I heard it online. No, I heard it. Okay. Yes, and that's good. And Daniel's uh, Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, right? So you got all these names you got to deal with, but you see these young adolescents thrust into Babylon, exiles hundreds of miles away from their homeland in Jerusalem after it's sacked and burned by the Babylonians, the temple destroyed, and so on. You see how they react to different things that come into their lives. The first six chapters or so of Daniel are pretty easy to read. They're like a straight narrative. You start getting deeper into Daniel, and then you're getting into more of the of the strange stuff and the future stuff and the apocalyptic stuff, uh, but we're still in the early chapters here today, and we're going to talk about the furnace of fire, famous story, uh, but before we get there, I, there was uh, oohs and ahs when I told you last week that I wasn't going to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And you went, oh, so I figured I'll start by interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which is not me interpreting it. It's Daniel who interprets it. As you recall, the king had said, I want the person to tell me the dream and then interpret the dream, which is an impossible thing. But you see Daniel in the power of the spirit that we talked about last week. He's able to tell the king the dream. He's able to interpret the dream. This is uh, Daniel chapter 2, and uh, starting the interpretation, uh, interpretation verse 36, okay, of, of Daniel chapter 2, this dazzling statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream that is made of different sort of chemicals as you look down the statue. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. He might even be in the presence of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At the same time, we're not sure. Anyway, Daniel's got the interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. That's pretty, pretty direct. And then he's going to move down the statue after you. Another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Probably the Medo-Persians who would take out 
the Babylonians in the book of Daniel. You will see that take place uh, very shortly. We'll, we'll take a look at that. So that kingdom is going to come. That is the, the different uh, uh, component there, the different element of the chest. And then you, you move down next, a third kingdom, one of bronze. Uh, where am I? One of bronze will rule over all the earth. This is most likely uh, the Greeks, in particular the conquests of Alexander the Great. This is typically the way that it is thought. And then in verse 40, finally there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. This is most probably Rome who would take out the Greeks. For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw, the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. There's debate about whether this is you know, Rome from the time of Jesus, or this is some sort of revived type of Roman Empire. People debate about this. The scholars aren't sure, but it seems to be divided against itself. So this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay. So this kingdom will be partly strong, and partly brittle, just as you saw the iron mixed with the clay, the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring all of them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, uh, but not with human hands, a rock that broke the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold to pieces. This is the kingdom, it's viewed typically of the Messiah that will come and conquer them all. And this is the dream, and this is the interpretation of the dream. And as we saw, Nebuchadnezzar's reaction is to fall down before Daniel to pay him honor, to almost treat him like one of the gods, burn incense to him, and say, your God is it. You know, he says, your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. He's the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal the mystery. He gives Daniel a huge promotion. Daniel says, I want my buddies also promoted. So the king grants him that, and the chapter ends. Now, I read this to you because it's very important for you to understand that the one who is bringing these kingdoms up and bringing these kingdoms down is who? It's God. It's God. He, this is the message the sovereignty of God is on display here. And now if Nebuchadnezzar had any sense to him, he would realize that he is that head of gold that will soon be deposed. 
If he had the sense, he would, he would realize this. He apparently recognizes the power of the God that inhabits Daniel to give him this interpretation. And then we move into Daniel chapter 3 right away. And just to give you a summary of the chapter before we get into how it applies to us, the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does, we're not too sure how long after the previous chapter, but presumably pretty close, he goes and he makes a huge statue. And the statue is gold. It's, it, we're told in the old language, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. You say, what's a cubit? We're talking a statue that's 90 feet high. Folks, from here to the ceiling is probably 25 feet, maybe 30 feet. We're talking triple the height from here, from this stage to the ceiling. That's some big gold statue. Now, we know the Babylonians were quite capable in terms of their architecture and all this, but that's some big statue. And six cubits wide, it's nine feet wide. This massive, massive statue. I mean, the guy just has a dream about this statue and what the meaning is of it. And what does he do? He builds a statue. Now, some people think that it's a statue of himself. Some don't. We're not sure what it was. It may well have been a statue of himself, but we're not 100% sure. He sets it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and then he gets his whole entourage. The satraps, the prefects, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, the provincial officials to come for the dedication of the statue. It's going to have a big ceremony to show off this statue. And this is why people think it's probably a statue of himself. And so all these officials, they come and they assemble for the grand ceremony of the dedication of this image that the king had set up and they stand before it and you have a messenger who says hear ye hear ye you know nations and peoples of every language this is what you are commanded to do and in in straight terms when you hear the music play and you've got all kinds of instruments, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe. I mean, when you hear the band play, when you hear the music play, that's your cue, everybody. Hear ye, hear ye, you must fall down and worship the image of gold. Do you understand the command, everyone? Yes, they say. We get it. As soon as you hear the music, you must pay homage. You must bow down. You must worship the image of gold that the king has set up. And there's a caveat. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the fire. Yeah. You're going to be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, we're not sure, you know, how big, how blazing, but presumably a life-size, human-size furnace was created for the purpose of incinerating alive anyone who did not follow this command that was given. And so this is the order. Very simple. You all must bow down or people are going to start to die. Verse 8, some of the astrologers, uh, they come forward and they mention that, hey, we've got some problems here. 
Because there are some Hebrew people here, and they, and they go to the king, and they say, King, may you live forever. You know, you've got this decree. When the music plays, everybody bows down to worship the image of gold. Whoever doesn't is going to die. But you've got these Jews, and they, they're in charge. You set them over the affairs of the province, and they name them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Curious. Uh, Belteshazzar or Daniel is not named. We're not sure where he is. He had a very high standing position, presumably. He might have been out of town. He might have been on an errand for the king, but he is not mentioned here. He will have something similar happen to him with the den of lions, but here he's not mentioned. And so these tattletales say, look, these three Hebrews do not pay attention to you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship your image of gold. What are you going to do about it? And so the king is furious with rage, and he calls the three young men into his court. They're brought before the king, and he interrogates them. And he says, is it true? That you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up. This is what I hear. This is a rumor that I hear. I want to hear it straight from you and straight from your mouth that you refuse to do this. Now, here's, did you understand what I've said? The, when the music plays, you bow down and worship the statue. But if you don't, you're going to be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And so they replied to him, young men, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend yourself, ourselves before you in this matter. My goodness, what composure these young men have. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And watch this. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods, and we will not worship the image of gold that you have set up, and then Nebuchadnezzar with the itchy trigger finger, right? We've seen this leader, you know, chapter one, he's got an itchy trigger finger. The, the leader who's feeding Daniel and his friends the food is worried because Daniel and his friends say, no, we're not going to eat this food from this king's table. It defiles us. And remember, the guy is worried and he says, oh, if the king sees you look different, and you look emaciated because you're not eating this good food, he's going to have my head. So we know he has an itchy trigger finger. We know that he's uh, 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 very much wanting to execute people who don't do what he says. And here he is building this massive, massive statue on the heels of being shown something by God himself. The arrogance and the self-centeredness of this leader is spectacular. But anyway, right on cue, verse 19, he is furious. He is enraged with these three and his attitude towards them changes. And the fangs come out, as it were, and he says, you take that furnace, 
and you turn, you crank up the heat seven times hotter than what it is right now. You jack it up on the massive amount of heat. And he says, get the strongest soldiers in the army to tie these three up and throw them immediately into that furnace. He's in a blind rage. So these men wearing their robes and their trousers and so on are all bound up and they're thrown alive into this blazing furnace. I mean, the, 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 the furnace, we're told, is so hot that the soldiers are incinerated as they're trying to carry out the execution. I mean, it is a ghastly scene, and these three men, firmly tied, fell, so probably dropped into this thing, into this blazing furnace. And then the king, somehow he's able to see in there, again, we're not sure how this thing would have been composed, and he says, hold on a second, I thought you threw three men into that furnace. And they say, indeed we did, you know, and half the people, you know, died doing it. There's three in there. And he says, yeah, but how come I see four men that are walking around in the fire? They're not bound anymore. They're not harmed. They're still alive. And there's a fourth man in that furnace with them. And he looks like a son of the gods. Something supernatural about this fourth man. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he, he goes to the opening and he calls out their names and he says, come here. And so they come out of the fire and all the satraps and the prefects and the governors and all these officials and it's all crowded around them. Obviously, they want to see how is this possible. There's an old saying where there's, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And they want to see how is this, what's going on here. They see this fire has not harmed their bodies. There's not a hair on their head that's singed. Their robes aren't even scorched. There isn't even an odor on them. This is a clearly a supernatural thing has taken place. And Nebuchadnezzar, he, he said, well, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He must have sent his angel and rescued his servants. And so they, they, they trusted in him and, and defied the king's command. He's admitting that he's lost here and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. He's impressed. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. Boy, itchy trigger finger. For no other God can save in this way. And he gives them another promotion in the province of Babylon. So you have the statue, you have the decree, you have the response of the three boys, and you have the fiery furnace incident. Are you with me so far? How many of you have heard the story before? It's not new to you. Okay, so half of you, you know the story. So th there's several really applicable things, even for the 21st century, that we can learn today about this story. Several things. I'm going to give you just three. Number one, or four, I think it is. Number one, I call it arrogance eclipses apocalypse. Arrogance eclipses apocalypse. You say, what in the world are you talking about? When we, when we use the word apocalypse today, we, we use it 
to refer to some kind of cataclysmic event about the future and the end of the world, you know, and this is the way we think about apocalypse. In the, in the language of the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, that's not what the word that we translate apocalypse meant. The word meant to unveil, to uncover, to remove the blockage so that you could see behind something. You, you would apocalypse it. You would remove the, 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 the barrier. It would be like uh, removing this screen here and, and pulling it back so that you could see what's behind the screen. That's an apocalypse. An eclipse is when you block something, when you cover something. We use these terms uh, in astronomy. Apocalypse is used in moon phases. Eclipse is used in moon phases and solar phases and so on. And so when I say arrogance eclipses apocalypse, Nebuchadnezzar is shown, God reveals, he pulls back the curtain to this ungodly king and shows him in a dream a vision of the future successive kingdoms rising and falling and ultimately overtaken by the kingdom of the Messiah at some sort of future time. He has experienced, therefore, an apocalypse. He has seen behind the curtain. But he's so arrogant and so self-centered and so probably narcissistic, to use a popular term, that his arrogance blocks the apocalypse of God that's been shown to him. And this, folks, is true in our day. You can see leaders around the world, even in the 21st century, so full of themselves and building their kingdoms, as it were, around themselves, self-centered, treating people in a certain condescending way, and so on. And you can see that arrogance even throughout history, king after king. This, this folks, is 6th century B.C., and this king is like this. You see this now even today. And this kind of arrogance blocks the, the uh, God trying to reveal himself. Even in the human heart when you become arrogant and God is trying to reveal himself to you, that will block it. You will eclipse God trying to reveal himself to you. Now, I don't believe in what's called extra-biblical revelation in the sense that the Bible is complete. There's nothing new that God wants to say to humanity. You know, you pick up a book and someone says, I've seen hell and I can tell you how many chambers are there and, you know, and all this detail and all these things. Folks, that's, that's off the charts. That's extra-biblical revelation. I don't... I don't I uh, think that that's a safe thing to indulge, folks. But God still does reveal himself to people. I've heard and read accounts of people, particularly in Islam and in Judaism, who have visions of Jesus, very similar to what Paul experienced in the book of Acts. God still reveals himself to people, shows himself to people, and when we're arrogant, our arrogance can block that. It certainly was the case in this king. I mean, incredible thing that he saw, and yet he fluffs this off and makes this massive statue out of gold, has this elaborate ceremony, and if you don't bow down to it, you're subject to the death penalty. Terrible arrogance. 
Watch out for it. It is a deadly, deadly peril, arrogance and pride. Number two, pick your battles. They'll likely pick you. So uh, verses 12 to 15, the boys are in big trouble. They didn't ask for it, folks. They didn't ask for it. They're stuck there in Babylon. They're exiled there to Babylon. And remember, their response in, in chapter 1 is, I think today it would be viewed even as very controversial. Because what do they do? They accept the fact that their names are changed. They learn the language and the culture and that would it comprise the religious worldview of the Babylonians without objection. They learn all of these things that are the antithesis of their worldview and their religion. They become experts in the language and the culture and the religion of the Babylonians without uh, uh, refusing to do this. Yet they draw the line on what? The food. We're not going to eat the food that is offered to us, the royal food and wine, because it defiles us. It messes with our faith. It messes with our belief system. That's where we draw the line, and we are not going to eat that food. And they come up with a brilliant compromise, and they have their vegetables and their water and so on, and they look so much better than everybody else. We talked about that in chapter 1. Here, they have a battle that has come to them. They are brought in. Somebody tattletales on them and says, these are Hebrews. They don't worship these gods. They worship this God, Yahweh, who is no God to us. And what are you going to do about it, king? And so they're hauled into the king's court, as it, will, as it were, and interrogated by the king under the penalty of death. The battle has come to pick them. Why do I say this? Because our, we live in a very peculiar time here and place here in 21st century North America, Canada, the U.S., Quebec, which has its own particular thing about this, in general, the West. It's very peculiar and very particular because on the one hand, listen closely to me because I don't want to be misinterpreted here. Some of you are going to be really irritated by this. Some of you won't. So I want to be clear. If you're irritated, it's fine. The, the culture, the broader culture at large, is becoming increasingly antagonistic toward organized religion, and in particular, I would say, toward the church. Increasingly antagonistic. Whereas the church used to be, and, and religion in general, used to be thought of as beneficial for society at large, now there is a real push to say that no, it isn't. In fact, it's damaging to society at large, and there are many in the broader culture that have adopted this view. Now, clearly, the view that it was beneficial was there. I mean, the, the tax laws still carry the vestige of this, folks. I mean, uh, you, you give to your local church or your mosque or your synagogue or whatever, and you get an income tax receipt. It's in the tax laws. You know, a church owns a piece of property and they don't have to pay tax on it. Why is this there? Because it was thought of that these things were beneficial overall to society. But now there's a push to say, no, it may well actually be the reverse. It may well be damaging to society. And we see this in particular here in, in North America with the culture wars. 
just this past week, folks, just to pick a couple of examples in these culture wars and how the church and really religion, especially on the conservative side, is viewed. Uh, here you have this story in the U.S., big story, with the backlash against the department stores that are marketing the, the clothing, garments, and so on in view of uh, uh, LGBTQ and pride and so on. Uh, June is designated as the Pride Month, and so you've got all this stuff, and it's for infants, you know, and it's, it's really direct LGBTQ. I even saw videos of tarot cards being sold and marketed to little kids, and there's this huge backlash in the U.S., and you've got people irate and, you know, making videos and posting videos and saying, boycott this store and boycott that store, and the stock dropped in one of the major department stores there, and there was some movement to, okay, put it in the back of the store or take it off the shelves. You know, big backlash, big story, big battle, big culture war. And no matter how you cut the cake these days, folks, when you talk about that subject, and it is the hot, controversial subject, when you talk to people about your Christianity, it is going to come up, no doubt. You have a serious conversation with someone about your faith, it is going to come up. Now, it does not matter if you state your view with respect and with gentleness. It does not matter. You will be viewed as hostile bigoted and all of this stuff if you simply carry a non-affirming position to LGBTQ, okay? You will be viewed that way. It doesn't matter how gentle you are. It doesn't matter how respectful you are. Pick your battles. And they sure did pick it in the U.S. My goodness, yelling and screaming and all of this. And well, maybe they won a little bit. Maybe they lost a little bit, but it was a big battle. Even here in Canada, professional sports athlete, all he did in the city of Toronto was forward a post about this, which was a clearly non-affirming post. And, you know, the guy is going on and on about how this is not biblical and so on and so forth. This is ungodly. All the athlete did was forward a post. That's it. He didn't say anything. Oh, my goodness. Public apology, very well scripted and booed in his own stadium in the city of Toronto. So this is a culture war. And what happens is that no matter how you cut the cake now, the view of organized religion and the church is these people are increasingly, we're viewed as hateful, we're viewed as bigoted, we're viewed as all of these things simply for carrying, even respectfully, a non-affirming position. I get that. I understand that. I talk, I've talked to you in the congregation, and you've got grandkids now. I'll just say it, folks, and they don't know what gender they are because your own kids are preaching them this whole new worldview and doctrine of LGBTQ. I told you, you should learn this worldview. You should become an expert in what this view is and how people in this view think and what they understand. How are you going to have a rational conversation with someone who holds a different view than you when you don't understand it? And you just want to non-affirm it and non-affirm it and criticize it. Well, go ahead. Your conversation will stop because they realize you don't know what you're talking about. You just don't like it. Why don't you like it? Explain. Try and have a rational conversation. Learn the whole thing. This is what Daniel and his friends did. They learned their worldview of the Babylonians. Even though they didn't agree with it, they still learned it, folks. 
And I think you do. But I understand this. I understand this frustration you feel when you go to visit your grandparents and they don't know what gender they are. Or your grandkids and they don't know what gender they are. Because your own kids are telling them these things. And you say, when is, when is enough enough? We need to stand up and say something. I totally get this, folks. And I totally respect the people who stand up and they, you know, they say boycott this. And bo I totally understand that. I get that. I respect that. I respect the boldness. On the other hand, this idea that somehow the role of the church is to reclaim Christianity across North America, and this is our heritage, and we need to find all of these horrible things in the culture and fight against them all the time and picket against them all the time and bash them all the time because it's our responsibility to create some sort of Christian utopia in North America. Folks, this is not utopia. This is Babylon. We live in Babylon. We don't live in a Christian nation. The United States is not a Christian nation. Canada is not a Christian nation. And if we think that our mission is to somehow aggressively Christianize the world in preparation for the return of Jesus, folks, that's way off the bank of what the Bible says. You want battles, folks? You don't have to look far. They're going to come to you. Pick your battles and decide what hill you're going to die on. Because we live in a culture, I'm telling you, it's going to be increasingly antagonistic towards faith. It will be. This is predicted in this book, folks. It will get increasingly unfriendly, not increasingly friendly. So you need to decide, what am I going to stand up and fight and what am I not? Because regardless of whether you do or you don't, the battle is going to come your way. And you're going to have to, at some point or another, draw the line and say, this is where I will not do what you're asking me to do. It's curious, in the scripture, what we see is largely a defensive posture when it comes to authority imposing things on people of faith. It's largely defensive. It's not offensive. What do I mean by this? The, the, the Hebrew women in the book of Exodus, the, the decree is issued. Take the babies and throw them into the Nile. They say, no, we will not do it. Here in Daniel, the decree is issued. Bow down before the statue. No, we will not do it. The order is given. Eat the food. No, we will not do it. Book of Acts, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. No, we will continue to preach in the name of Jesus. These battles came looking for these people, and they take this defensive posture, and they say, no, we will continue to do what we are doing because this is who we are. This is what we are doing. They're not out to overthrow culture. They're not out to overthrow politics. They're not out to overthrow economic systems. They're there to preach the gospel. And come what may will come. So you, you, we have to learn to cope with these things, folks, and stop trying to think that this, this is somehow, we, our job is to somehow Christianize the nation. No, your job is to talk about the Lord who saved you, who forgave your sin, and you can offer that to somebody else. That's what your job is. The response of that person is not your responsibility, but your job is to be who you are. If you go on a mission to aggressively overthrow the culture and Christianize it, I'm telling you, you're going to be frustrated at the end. 
You're going to be frustrated because the culture will increasingly be against that kind of thing. There's nothing you can really do to stop it. So pick your battles. It's okay to have them, but pick them carefully because they are going to come for you anyway. Number three, mature faith accepts God's sovereign outcome. This passage where they say, you know, Mr. King, we don't have to defend ourselves against you. God is going to deliver us from this fire, but even if he does not, that is some mature faith, folks. They recognize that there was the potential that they were going to die. And they said, even if we die, we still are not going to bow down to your gods or your statue. Amazing maturity in their faith. We have to learn to get there as a, as a, a culture of faith today, a people of faith God sometimes is going to give you an outcome in his sovereign plan. This is what the book of Daniel is about. That isn't the outcome that you wanted. It isn't the outcome that you were praying for. What are you going to do when that outcome comes? Because it may well come. It may well be different from what you were expecting. It may well be disappointing to you. Mature faith says, I accept it. It's God's sovereign outcome, and I will still hold on to my faith even through the fire. And finally, God is with you more than you realize. I see people in this room who have testified that to me. I have known people over 22 years of ministry who have said the same thing to me over and over again. And they say, you know what? I don't know how I made it through. I don't know how I made it through this situation. I don't know how I made it through this loss. I don't know how I made it through this sickness. I don't know how I made it through this poverty. It must have been God. Yes, it was. He was the fourth man with you in the fire. There is debate about this, but I take the side that the fourth man in the fiery furnace was the pre-incarnate Christ. I take this position. This is Jesus before the manger, as it were. Remember, Jesus is God. You have a curious figure who weaves his way through the Old Testament called the angel of Yahweh. Sometimes he is called Yahweh. Sometimes he's called the angel of Yahweh. And in my opinion, this is who that was in the furnace. Regardless, the idea was God was with them in the flame. He was with them, and more times than you realize, folks, sometimes you have to look back in time to catch it, but more times than you realize it, he indeed is with you. I wonder if, if Daniel commiserated with Isaiah. The timing may be off, but here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, possibly in reference to Moses passing through the water. I will be with you when you pass through the rivers. They will not sweep over. For you when you walk through fire you will not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze god is with you more than you realize folks 
He is in those moments of pain. He is in those moments of fire. He is in those moments of suffering. The question is, will you recognize it? And will you, will you fall down on your knees in terms of the posture of your heart and say, God, I just submit to you, to your sovereign power, to you, your sovereign plan in my life? Would you stand with me? We're going to close the service in prayer here, and uh, I see Simon and Rose, you're in the room, you can come up and play as we finish. I wonder if there are those of you, and you're, maybe you're in the room, maybe you're watching online, or maybe you'll watch a recording of this, and, and something has really grabbed a hold of you uh, this morning. You know, maybe it, it might even be just your perception of what you're supposed to do here. Are you supposed to be this right fighter? Uh, to try to change the culture, or are you just supposed to share your faith and be who you are? Maybe you're a person right now and you are in the fiery situation. Maybe your Babylon is at work. Maybe your Babylon is in school. Maybe your Babylon might even be in your own house, and it is not friendly toward you, your circumstances, antagonistic toward you, antagonistic toward your faith, and you feel that pressure, and you feel that heat, and you feel that burning sense of, I am under fire. Just raise your hands before God in this moment and say, Lord, I submit to you, and I surrender to you, and ask that you would be my strength, ask that you would increase my faith, that I would be able to stand in whatever moment and hold on to the faith that you have given me and see it even grow and see it even increase in these moments of difficulty. Lord, I pray your blessing upon family, households, upon marriages, upon uh, people, single people, divorced people, people who are new family members, people whatever their situation is God students seniors in the name of Jesus let the presence of the Holy Spirit gently and powerfully be with people oh God in our practical day-to-day -day moments as we live and breathe and face this culture may we do so Lord in the power of the Spirit we pray together in Jesus name and everyone said amen the Lord bless you today remember to pick up your kids uh, before you leave God bless you have a wonderful wonderful first Sunday of June
God, you're the great I am. Breath of life, I breathe you in. Even in the fire, I'm alive in you. You are strong in my brokenness, sovereign over every step. Even in the fire, I'm alive, I'm alive in you. I'm alive in you. Through the dark, I hear your Rising up, I will rejoice. For I was lost, but now I'm found. Cause even death can't hold you down. You are God, you're the great I am. Breath of life, I breathe you in. Even in the fire, I'm alive in you. You are strong in my brokenness, sovereign over every step. Even in the fire, I'm alive, I'm alive in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, Christ who lives within me. From beginning to the end, you deserve the glory, you deserve the glory. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who Sovereign over every step, even in the far, I'm alive, I'm alive in you. I'm alive in you. I'm alive in you. 